Welcome to the Transform Your Wealth and Health podcast, where experts in wealth, health, and fitness help transform your life. Here's your host, Andy Arder. She's a highly successful property coach, mentor, landlord, and businesswoman who started out as a kitchen table startup, now having completed property deals worth over 45 million pounds. Today's guest is the good property company's Susanna Cole. Susanna, how are we doing? Oh, super. Really nice to be here. And thanks for inviting me on. Very kind of you. Absolute pleasure, Susanna. I'm actually a bit of a fan, I've got to say. Uh, I've watched your stuff on YouTube. Love some of the projects and stuff that you've done on there. So um, really, really enjoyed it and see the way you've added value to the properties and, and yeah. stuff like that. But I want to take things back a little bit further because I know you wasn't always big into property and you were no. doing other things and, and you was even um, a, a single parent at one point before you started up your company. So take us back right back before you was actually getting into property. What was you doing? So I um, was fortunate in many ways to have my children really early, straight after graduating from university, which is great in so many ways, um, because you're young, you're flexible, you haven't had any money anyway, you're quite used to not sleeping, so and you've got loads of energy. Um, So I loved it. Uh, I loved that whole part. However, uh, you also don't have any money, and, um, and then you've got to really be responsible for your children when you don't have huge amount of resources as quite a young person you know I mean I look at my children who are now older than I at I was and think it's just babies so so what I was doing um, and this may resonate with some people was looking to survive in the early days and I'm not meaning that in a big kind of victimy way because that's not my style at all I'm like get on with it but it was quite a shock to move from being a student and going what was theoretically kind of a a normal route to appreciating that uh, as head of household with a small young family we're all quite little you know they were very little and I'm only five foot two there there really is no plan b now I'm very close to my parents but I'm also quite proud and quite stubborn and I certainly wouldn't want to land that responsibility onto my parents even though they're brilliant grandparents and and I love them to bits so there was just a plan a there was no plan b um, so I started out, uh, once they were very little, running a fair trade business. Um, and it's cute. You know, when you're in your early 20s, and I see it with my son now, you just want to change the world, don't you? You know. So I wanted to change the world one Guatemalan worry dollar at a time, you know, because I don't think it's fair that people are paid in different ways. So I, I had a pasting table, you know, like a wallpaper table. So property was always involved, wasn't it? And I started out at little fairs and events with the kids with me, selling Guatemalan worry dolls and things from Bali, you know, dolphin carvings and all of that stuff, everything that was fair trade. And it was in the early days of fair trade. So the Fair Trade Foundation had just started. And it was really, I, I want to trade, I want to be independent because as a, as a relatively lowly skilled employee, I'm going to struggle to look after my family. Therefore, independence and running running something myself is probably going to be easier and more family friendly, but I also want to save the world. So I may have have been wearing Guatemalan dungarees at the time, but no photos. (laughs) Okay. So how did you scale that up? How did that start to to get going and sort of bring some money in? Because you've got to run a family and you're on your own. You must have have had trying times with the testing and you had to obviously pick that up and get it going. So how did you do that? 
Uh, frankly, the age-old entrepreneur way, a lot of hustle and hard graft when the kids were asleep. So I lived in a little cute cottage and I had a shed, a stone shed, which held my washing machine and my office and a small radiator. And so uh, when the kids were either at play school or they were asleep, I'd be out there doing the washing and running the business. And, and so I just worked extremely hard around my family's time. And I grew it from a little pasting table up to five shops in, in Scotland. Wow. Um, and I've got I've to appreciate the, you know, the help of the Prince's Trust. That is an amazing organization for young uh, entrepreneurs who are not maybe in the best of situations. You know, head of household, two little kids, that's quite tough. So they were brilliant. They used to bring in experienced people to come in and mentor so there was a guy called Douglas Sharp who was a, 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 a nice bank manager would come in and sit at my little kitchen table and teach me how to do my profit and loss and my bookkeeping because you just don't know what you don't know you don't know I had another guy called Jim who again was assigned to me because they could see I was quite driven so they could see there were they probably would do well to back me. And he gave me property strategy sessions. You know, this is when I was like 22, 23. So I really benefited from some really great mentoring people from the Princess Trust and from the local economic development agency. And check this, I got a grant of 40 pounds a week, I think for six months. 40 pounds a week, and did that really help me? drive yes. you on yeah <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah because it it made the difference at the time you know you could afford some 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 food because of, so so I'm really grateful for those formal training programs which recognize the drive of a young entrepreneur but also recognize that at this stage you just don't have any systems you don't have a huge amount of knowledge you're blundering with a lot of you're like an elephant blundering with a lot of work and actually, you need to be very precise and very skilled. So they were trying to bring in, you know, Archie was this amazing accountant. And all of this was free help. They would come in and teach me how to do this stuff. It was amazing. Yeah, so, amazing mentors. Sorry. That's okay. Do you think that the family ever suffered because you wanted to be a, a, you know, an independent lady and run a profitable business? Do you think that, the, you know, as you say, it was difficult to feed the family and... Did they ever get to a point that you thought, I shouldn't be doing this, I should be doing a normal, regular job? Interestingly, well, they certainly never told me they suffered. And um, I'm quite straight speaking, and it turns out my children have inherited that trait. <laughs> so not once have I had it. I think, you know, they're now in their 20s, so they probably would say, oi, mum. I actually think of the other way around. I did a nine, seven years, sorry, as an entrepreneur until the age of 29. Uh, I grew it to five shops. I, I had a mentor from Happit, uh, which is a Scottish chain, which at that point had 70 shops. And he came in and said, look, you're working so crazy hard, I'd shut your business down. You know, oh, what? I was making money, but I was just working very hard. Uh, so my rule was I kept Sundays for the family. Right. And, and so Saturdays, I still worked really hard. Sundays was, you know, roast dinner, a apple pie and custard, and it was family time. We went for walks and we really spent time together. And and to be fair, um, I, I would work when they were asleep, which is a joy of being an entrepreneur if you've got a tricky situation. So at breakfast, I was fully present. When they came home from school, I was there helping them with their homework. Um, yes, okay, Pingu might be a lovely place to park them for an, a, an hour. And then they'd go to bed. And then I'd work, you know, maybe five or six hours. and then. 
probably work before they got up again. So sleep wasn't amazing, but it meant I could flex around them to a degree. Uh, um, so I don't think they haven't vocalized that they suffered. Uh, and, I, and, and actually, when I then closed that business down on the advice of the chap, even though it was profitable, because he was like, you can only scale up by working harder in this business. That, and it was a really great piece of advice, which was really tough to hear, but he was right. Uh, and then I decided to go into corporate life in order to learn the skills that I didn't know. I didn't, I didn't, you know, the stuff I didn't know I needed to know. Yeah. And I think, I wouldn't say the family suffered, but I think that was less useful as a family unit of three because of course I had to do a full-time job in an office so I was then paying for childcare. now we had amazing people to help and support our family but my kids were no longer around me you see what I mean and yes of course yes yeah definitely yeah I would say corporate life is less flexible for a family than entrepreneurial life and I hope I taught my kids to work hard now I'm teaching them that it pays off and you know I just took six and a half weeks holiday and then bounced back for a week and then took a week going to see my son who's living in Barcelona running a skateboard business and, and doing a photography business and teaching English so um, I hope that they can see that hard work pays off. Yeah well it was obviously you know from the lifestyle that you had back in the early days to the ones which you can afford to have now it's different yeah. of course you've been successful so so how did you move things on from the corporate life that you was leading then secondly after closing your business down yeah how did you get into the property from the corporate life well I did four jobs two up in Scotland uh, which I, I loved and I liked all of my jobs they're very interesting and then two down here in Bristol because again a lot of my decisions were driven by my kids so, in, so I know I'm not answering your question yet, but I promise I will. <laughs> we lived up in Scotland. Uh, we led an Enid Blyton life. And that probably assisted. Do you see how I like choosing my own um, parameters of my life? So I had stretched myself like crazy to buy an old farmhouse, which was absolutely knackered. I renovated. I'd done this three times in Scotland. Bought old farmhouses that I really couldn't afford. Renovated them myself when the kids were asleep. So again, I was probably, you know, doing property because as a single parent, I'm not going to go out because either I need to pay for childcare and I don't have the money. But more importantly, I don't really want to go out. My, my kids are at home. So I want to be at home. So I've got to do stuff at home. So I might as well. So I renovated three houses, doubled my money each time, which then and then the kids hit kind of 10 and 12. And we had been living in this beautiful old farmhouse you know, two miles out from the village you know, with acres of land. I grew all our vegetables. We had chickens, a Labrador, you know, it was Enid Blyton. Um, yeah. And I just thought, they'll get into trouble if they stay here. You know, they'll get bored and they'll get into trouble. <laughs> so we need to move to a city where there's more. So we moved down to Bristol. I did two more corporate jobs and again, learned loads of skills. But I always knew that the corporate life, whilst enriching in skills and developmental opportunities, was not a life I felt comfortable in, in terms of it constricts you, you have to be in a location. Like, I am trustworthy with work. I will work really hard. Although I have discovered recently, I like holidays too. But, you know, so the kind of capacity to deliver work is never a problem. Therefore, why should I be in an office? Why do I have to be chained here from this time to this time? Uh, why even do I need to work with people who I might not have chosen to work with? Because they may not, may not be as good as I want them to be or may not be as pleasant as sometimes I want them to be. You know, that whole office politicking nonsense. 
Why do I give you my pension and then trust that 40 years later you're going to give it back when, you know, somebody jumped over a, a yacht, didn't he, and died because he'd, he'd, he'd taken everybody's pension from his newspaper? Why would I give you my future? I, I just logically didn't understand. Why should I be trapped and give away my future safety in the hope and trust that you'll actually pay it back to me? I don't get that. So it was illogical. It's a funny thing you said there. I mean, you just slipped it in the conversation very nonchalantly that you'd done these property projects up in Scotland uh, yeah. and you doubled your money. I mean, I know. <laughs> wow. Tell us a bit more about that. How did you do that? Well, I love property, as you probably know, because, you you know, you, you've seen. So so down here, I'm cookie cuttering it. It's, it's a cookie cutter. Get in, get fast, get out. You know, do high quality, but it's a cookie cutter. Up there... Oh my goodness, my imagination. So there are two ways, I think, to make money in property. One is have a standard product that is fit for purpose, understanding your customer and cookie-cuttering it and going fast and speed. The other one is quality. Now, my stuff was good quality anyway down here, but in terms of quality or one-off. So you've got price, speed, and quality. So if I want a high price, I can, or I want a high profit, I can either go with speed or I can go with quality. So down here... I do solidly good quality and speed, you know, buy it on a Friday, renovate it on a Monday. If I can get the builders in on Saturday, they're in. I've <laughs> Scotland, um, almost because I love design, so many of my uh, design ideas, you know, I would go to um, the Knackers yards. I would almost do my back end by lifting out all these old radiators and then I'd get them kind of, um, steamed through by the plumber, power washed through by the plumber. I'd get them dipped. Um, I would I would find you know um, things in Falkirk, which would be a hundred miles away from where I lived. Fire, you know, fireplaces. I would find really special one-off items that can never be bought again. So a lot of heritage. So I made very interesting design houses. I like design. It's fun. Mm -hmm. It's like it's like a game for me. And because you know, um, head of household. So, and I lived two and a half hours, miles into the country so my kids could have the scenic light. And it meant uh, I didn't, I could, my friends couldn't nip in at night time. So we're kind of on my own, not, not lonely, but on my own and going, hmm, eBay, you know, Gumtree. Ooh. So I was finding all these marvelously interesting items. Like in my house here, I have I have, it sounds ridiculous, I have curt brass curtain holders this size from a French chateau. You know, mm -hmm. eBay, 130 quid, <laughs> priceless. So I created really, really interesting pieces of design that the buyers were just like, I have to have it. And my third property, um, it was so it was very beautiful. And I created a beautiful garden again, because what else you can do? <laughs> you know, you're there, the kids are asleep. Um, not going to watch telly, so do this instead. And um, the buyers uh, went on the market the uh, the week after Lehman Brothers crashed. Could you imagine a worse time to sell a property? And I got one offer. I never told them one offer. Uh, I mean, I pretty much got double what was that? Yeah, and I got one offer which was I think seventy grand over asking price. And one offer, which was something like 30 grand over asking price. And it just was one of those, she's got to have it. And if she says, he's like, okay, honey. So, and that's a great strategy, but it's also a risky strategy because you don't have lots of other, you know, you, you're going to have a small number of people who just have to have it. 
Okay. So, te- but what about your team nowadays? And obviously, you you know, it's yes. not just you doing it. I've seen your builder even on your on your videos. <laughs> you know, he, he gets involved. He might roll his eyes a couple of times, but you know, he looks. Like- <laughs> 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 but you know, he, he looks like he's part of the team too. You know, I know that he's a you know he's outside the independent guy with other other people and other customers as well. But you yeah. know him well, and he knows your projects, and and he, and he knows what you expect. And I know from from stuff that you've said on the videos that literally you've got the idea before you move in you've got the the investment sorted you know what you're going to do on the way out and it's all like you say cookie cutter so if if anyone's listening and wants to get involved in property obviously they're not possibly as experienced or as successful as you are but you know they might have an an inkling that they'd like to do property for for a, uh, a living what would you suggest they need to do first Okay. Well, first, you and I would both say, do it, do it, do it, do it. Because it is so, okay, there's a risk in the middle, mitigate your risk, but it's so freeing on the other end, that classic rich dad, poor dad, assets, paying bills. It is financial freedom. It it, it absolutely is. You know, and I've just traveled the world for six and a half weeks going, oh my God, the books are right. Um, And then I would say, if you're going to do the first one, I would always say do a single let. I know it's boring. I'm so sorry. But I want people to just learn their trade, earn their stripes, isn't it? You know, understand what it's like to be a landlord. Understand all the legislation, understand the paperwork. Join organizations such as either the NLA, National Landlord Association, or the RLA. We happen to be members of the NLA. I bet they're both as good as each other. Mm. I think the NLA is brilliant. Their legal helpline is worth its weight in gold. And just understand the process of being a landlord, but you must buy it discounted. So my first, my first little flat was seventy nine thousand. It was a seven grand refurb, and it was worth one twenty at the time. Job done. Cash back out. Go again. So now I'm understand. And my first flat, which you might have seen the video on, um, embarrassingly, I asked the electric. Now anyone who's laughing now, I understand why you would. I asked the electrician to put in the electrical shower. That's sensible, isn't it? Spot the floor. The electrical shower. Well, it was an electrical shower. Mm. The water, Susanna. And I didn't test the facilities uh, because I assumed, assume makes an ass out of you and me. And then the tenants moved in, really nice people. I'm still friends with Tim now. And they phoned me up and went, Suze, there's no water. I phoned the electrician and went, hey, mate, Steve, Steve, the shower, it's not working. He said, Suze, did you get a plumber to plumb it in? No. <laughs> so it's those really stupid mistakes you need to make on very small. So the guys came around to my house to shower for a couple of days until I got it sorted. Stupid mistakes you're going to make on your first one. Make small mistakes on your first one. You know, make all your simple, illogical mistakes early and then go fast to very high yielding properties. So each of my HMOs, it's a thousand pounds, between a thousand and a thousand five hundred net profit per month. You don't need many of them to be financially free. Um, so great scale up quite quickly to the high cash flowing properties or you get stuck in stuff that's earning you 300 quid 400 quid a month and that isn't good enough uh, i mean it's acceptable as practice but not acceptable as a long-term strategy for high cash flow mm. okay well that answers some of the some of the questions then in that case but um you were saying buy at discount so what's yeah. some good, good tips to buy at discount susanna Oh, so this, you know, we did 45 million quid's worth of property sourced for 30 million quid. Yeah. Uh, and we went, uh, and, and I don't want anyone to feel overwhelmed by that. I want people first, if I can backtrack, to know that I spent a whole year writing a plan. 
like a per you know a perfect plan no action at all and 16 pages long i was so scared of making mistakes it was so mathematically precise of course did it ha happen that way no but the good news was by exploring what could be in that plan and what could go wrong it meant i kind of mentally did quite a bit of thinking before I started. So if somebody's not started and they're feeling a bit overwhelmed by 45 million quid's worth of property, don't be. I did nothing for a year. And then I did three properties in the first uh, first year. Wee! And then I did four in the following six months because I still worked full time. Then I jumped out my day job and did 43. And I was really annoyed because my plan was to do 60. So I failed in my head, you know? Wow. So, so buying, so we know our numbers, we know our stats, we know how to yeah. do this, and we can teach people, we know what you need to do, but I don't want someone feeling overwhelmed by it. I spent a whole year in perfecting a 16-page plan first. So buying discounted is basically, I call it buying wholesale. You know these industry words for it, aren't there? BMV, below market value. And when I used to go to these property events and people would stand up and speak, I'd just think, you're talking nonsense. That's rip-off. You're lying. I mean, I didn't mean they were lying, but I kind of did, if you see what I mean. I didn't mean it as a personal insult. Just Find like, it hard to believe, basically. Yes. Yeah. But statistically speaking, one in 100 properties is sold discounted. And the reason for that is the people that are selling it don't need money as the primary uh, reason to sell. They need security, speed, or alternatively, they need a long a long hold with somebody. So it's 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 about certainty that you're going to buy it, and it's about a fast sale or a very slow sale. We once um, I bought a property for two hundred three thousand. She was a lovely lady. However, she lived with nine dogs. She didn't. Yeah, she didn't take them outside very often. So we'll just we'll just we'll just gloss over how badly that house smelled, and the neighbours had got a council order against her because of the dogs barking. So that took ages, like, I don't even know, like over a year to buy because she wanted security that I was going to buy. The estate just knew I was dead solid. And then with the money that I agreed, 203000 she then found another house and it took her a long time. Now, what was that property worth? Three thirty, Rick's valuation. But for her, it, and it was falling in, you know, so I did have to do some refurb. I did a 41, I think, remember, £1,000 refurb. So two or three purchases, 41000 330 Rick's valuation, which is a severe valuation. So for her, she didn't want to mend the roof that was falling in. She didn't. She just closed the door and moved downstairs. Um, but what she wanted was a certainty. Um, so finding properties discounted, one in 100 properties are sold for reasons other than price. It's just maths. I know, because we've done hundreds, so we know the, the maths. And so if somebody's phoning an estate agent, they're going to get knocked back 99 times. They're going to find a deal once. Auctions. We were doing YouTube videos with Charlie Dole, who's one of my favorite auctioneers today, um, who teaches on my auction um, weekend, and he's fabulous. He's, the, he's an auctioneer. Can you imagine how good he is? And, and I was telling him that our stats are that we buy one in four houses we go to at auction. I know that. So if I want to buy a house, I always try and buy four. I don't buy one, you know. One time yeah. we tried to buy 30 and we got seven. So statistics. I get you. It's maths. It's numbers. And it's understanding that one in 100 is going to be sold discounted. And one in four, statistically, if you're doing your maths properly, you should be buying an option.
Wow. Okay. Well, that's interesting stuff. I mean, you were saying there about um, you know you had you teaching people and and helping people. What what kind of stuff do you do in that realm? Ah, okay. So I do enjoy this. Can you imagine <laughs> um, telling people what to do? <laughs> because I know my stuff, and it's it's been so life changing to me. I'm genuinely. It's just genuinely a brilliant thing, you know. So I do a couple of things. Years ago, I, I, I do a mentoring program, a live one. We keep it quite small so I can really focus on people. It's high, high quality. I do an online mentoring program, but there's still live interaction every single week with me to keep people accountable. But instead, you know, people that can't come to Bristol, and we do have people fly in from the mentoring program every month, but people that can't, I've had, yeah, I've had people fly over from um, the Middle East, from Sweden, from Norway. Yeah, it's quite good fun. You're like, wow. International. I know. <laughs> How cool is that? And then, and then at the same workshop, we had a guy that just cycled from around the corner. Like 10 minutes. <laughs> Brilliant. You know, some guy like flown for 22 hours. Um, and then I do a live mentoring program whereby what we've done is film the mentoring, but we give everybody everything else. We give them a massive business involved. Every single process and system I use, like 175 documents. We give them a mentoring podcast because we've been mentoring for many years now. We've recorded everything's private. We won't ever publish it just for our mentees. We, you know, we have a group. Uh, I have conference calls every week in my diary and then obviously the curriculum and it's quality. You know, it's, it's, I don't do rent to rent, for example, because I don't believe that that's a wealth creating strategy. I'd rather if somebody didn't have any money, which most of us didn't when we started, that you do deal sourcing and deal packaging because you're learning the key skills of finding discounted deals and raising money. Mm -hmm. um, and then I do occasional one-off workshops. I've only got five this year. And then, because I love creating good quality material, I've created a lot of really good quality material that's on my online, on my website, thegoodpropertycompany.co.uk. So I quite like doing it. You do, don't you? Yeah, and thank you for being on the, the podcast, by the way, and uh, obviously helping some people out there that are okay. listening to this stuff, inspiring them as well, because, of course, you know, you've been successful. But whilst we're on the subject, let's talk about a few things that might not have gone quite as well, because we have people coming on, and everyone tells their success story. But normally, I would say nine out of ten of the people we, we have come on, they tell you about the things that have gone wrong. And, and of course, they've overcome adversity. No doubt you've been just the same. Yes. Uh, I once had 38 pence in the bank account. Yeah, not fun. Really. <laughs> I mean, that was, that. Uh, yes, uh, not fun at all. With payroll coming up. I've never paid my team late. But my goodness, it's been close at times. Because property does suck money. Uh, I, I've borrowed millions of pounds, so that's a huge success story. It's all paid back now, but twice I had to pay people back late. Sorry, I don't mean I had to. Twice the circumstances were, and in one of those circumstances, I had five ways I was going to pay them back, you know, refinance this, sell that, refinance this, you know, and all five, like almost like a gate. Um, I wouldn't say they failed. They, they just all got delayed. So you've got gate one fail, gate two fail, gate three fail, gate four, and you're just going oh my God, it's like dominoes and I've got to pay this person back. So twice in my career, I've paid people back late and that is mortifying, but you've got to communicate. I built a house and made no money. Um, one of my worst moments in property, actually, you know, just where your heart sinks beyond belief is, um, I, and I was responsible for it. It's every piece of responsibility is mine, whereby we were, we were building a, a, a building 
and the the um, the house insurance surveyor had come in and said, just before you put the foundations down, uh, he put this in writing. It didn't go to me, but that doesn't matter. It's my responsibility. Just before you put these foundations down, can you check the already existing foundations are fine? All you have to do is get your building regs officer out to to confirm that with his uh, insurance. Yeah, it didn't happen. Yeah, I discovered this mistake. So that's a lack of oversight on my part when we built the house. And it went Thank down, <laughs> sideways and backwards. So that is like falling off a cliff yeah. and going, what do I do? It's a 400 grand house that we've built. And as I was digging back through some of the administration, recognized that this simple task, and it was a very simple task, hadn't been done. So I had um, a five hour panic where I drank an enormous amount of tea and just thought, what on earth do we do? There is, and this is a bit about being an entrepreneur, there is always a way forward. So I called up my building regs guy and I said, what do you think is possible? And I actually called up the insurance surveyor as well, and they were both brilliant. They just said, what we'll do is we'll dig inspection holes and we'll do the inspection. So we got the problem resolved within about two days, but I'm going to tell you they were the one, two of the most uncomfortable days of my property life because I was thinking, I've just built a house, 400 grand. <laughs> and, and it's my own responsibility that this piece of admin wasn't done. Yeah, and made, and made no money, of course, which you was probably reliant upon at the time, yeah. <laughs> Beyond belief, yes. <laughs> yes. And cash flow is tough, isn't it, as a property investor? Yeah. Um, and very occasionally you're going to have, I mean, lots of speed bumps, lots, you know, but I'd rather talk about the speed bumps that, that I created or I was responsible for. You know, with a few, should we call them interesting investors that you wouldn't necessarily <laughs> work with again, but ultimately it's about your responsibility, isn't it? Yeah, sure. So, what kind of projects are you doing at the moment, Susanna? Okay. Woohoo! Here we go. Yes. Well, right now, I just got an offer accepted. So, um, I, like, I like puzzling things out. I like making things better at all times. Um, so, I've got, um, I don't like normally selling any of my property portfolio, but currently, my target is to pay off my houses. Because I'm a stubborn little minx, and as much as I'm grateful beyond belief that the banks lent me money, I, again, freedom, don't want to remain in that position forever. Thank you very much. Very grateful. Goodbye. Do you see what I mean? Um, mm. So I'm not anti the banks. It's, they are amazing for property developers and property investors because they allow leverage to buy assets, but nor do, nor do I want to remain in that position. Uh, so I'm paying off my houses. It's great fun. I've paid off two already and it's like dominoes. What's next? What's next? What's next? So um, I have a property that's quite far out of town. It's perfectly good property, but it has a corner plot and it's a non-standard construction. It's a, a, a kind of Cornish construction. And so the fact that it's a little bit out of town and it's not so pretty means that it's capital growth opportunity in Bristol is much less than most of my other properties. So what I've done is I spent a grand and a half putting planning on it and uh, in the garden and I'm selling the garden and I just got an offer accepted for 80 grand. It's mad, isn't it? <laughs> just for, for the garden. Yeah, I know. I got 70, 75 and 80 within a week. So if, one, if this 80 guy falls out of bed, no big deal. It'll just go back on the market. Yeah. So that is a profit of about 75 grand after I pay the agency costs and the lowest costs. For a piece of garden, 
So, um, so that's project number one. Project number two, I've got Grade Two Star Listed Chapel, which I bought for 130, which is in the centre of Bristol. I mean, when I saw it, I I couldn't breathe. It was so beautiful, and I'm turning that into a three-bedroom house. And I've been fiddling around with the planners and the um, conservation officers uh, and the management company because the roof leaks and they have to fix it. But to give you an idea of value, it's going to cost me about 100 grand to do up and a chapel further out of town, which was divided into two, sold for 750 each. Wow. Nice. Yeah, right? yeah, I'm... I, I'm not selling. I'm keeping that bad boy. <laughs> and then the third set of projects at the moment that I've got going on is, um, a, you know, Certificate of Lawfulness. So basically, I've got a bunch of HMOs, right? And HMOs are brilliant. I, I like HMOs enormously. My customers are working professionals. I don't have a bad debt problem. They're decent people, you know, nice human beings who talk to my nice human beings in my lettings business because we manage everything in the house. But I am aware that I will run an HMO business for a 10-year period in total and then I'll turn them into flats because that is, again, about efficiency of the management of the properties. So what I've done is I've got the first five of them, and we're just doing five at a time. I've got Stifgut of Lawfulness to go up into the loft, to the loft extension, because I don't know if your listeners know this, but if you apply directly to turn a house into flats, you get a tiny little dormer window at the back. If you do a Certificate of Lawfulness for a loft extension, you get the whole back of the house, it's just a weird little anomaly for planning. So all you do is do the outline build until you've got the space. You don't need to put anything inside it. And then you go back in and go, oh, I think I'll just turn it into flats. And you go back in and ask for planning for flats. So with the architect, we've already got the certificate of lawfulness for, I think, the first five. But at the same time as doing certificate of lawfulness, we also, between he and him and I, we've already agreed and he's already done all of the flat drawings for planning. So basically nothing needs to change, if you see what I mean. Right. Yeah. Um, so that's next, is over time turning, uh, doing those ones, turning them into flats, uh, which increases the value. So I'll spend a million and add, um, in the first lot, spend a million and add two million um, asset value to my portfolio. It's not oh. bad, is it? That's absolutely excellent, Susanna. See, I like, I like listening to the uh, higher level property people that we have on the show because um, literally from your ideas and, and the things that you create, I mean, obviously with the help of architects and, and professionals, yes. uh, you're not, you're, I, I know you're not doing the building yourself, but no. <laughs> so, um, yeah, so with the help of professionals, you, you, you've made a you know a very reasonable profit there. I mean, life-changing yeah. profit on one project. So that's absolutely incredible. Can I tell you and your listeners um, a strategy that could make them a million quid with very small financial input? Go and on, I am, as you know, I'm a dead straight speaker, so there's no BS for me at all. So let's go back to my little piece of land. It literally is in an ex-council house. It's a corner plot. How many council estates, and they don't need to be council estates, but the reason I like council estates is the houses generally are large and the gardens are generally large. So in every town and city, there's a council estate, yeah? Mm -hmm. So in every town and city, there's a, a significant number of court houses on the corner. In every town and city, there's a significant number of houses on the corner with large gardens. Because I, I really like, I don't always like the prettiness of council houses, but I love the amenity they give people. They're big, they're, you know, the gardens are big. Yeah. So 
Now we've got development land in every town and city on in the land in in our country. Okay. And generally, the planning process will allow an extension, either a, 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 a separated house or a, um, a, a terraced ex extension, because we need more houses. Yes. Now let's think about the people that generally live in those houses. Not always, so I'm, I'm real broad, broad brushing, and I do understand if somebody wants to take umbrage with me. Often, as they get older, they're going to discover two things. Number one, they haven't set enough money out for their retirement. And because generally, if somebody's an owner occupying that in that area, they're earning reasonable money, but it's not enormous because they probably would have, they might have moved elsewhere if they were earning enormous money. And number two, as they get older, that's a hell of a big garden. That's a lot of work. Yeah. So now you go as a totally decent human being and you knock on enough doors to say, look, there's two problems coming up for you without being terribly rude to you. Um, which is, do you have enough to live on as a pension? And that's a hell of a big garden. Do you want to be mowing that every week as you're getting into your 60s, 70s, 80s and 90s? Because we all want to live to, well, I want to live to 110. So, you know, and I don't want to be mowing, well, I don't, but, you know, I, w I, I, I wouldn't want to be mowing the garden. I will joint venture with you. I will pay the cost. If it fails, it's my cost. And we'll split the profit 50-50. Wow, that's an offer. Yeah. So most people say no. Some people it genuinely, truly will suit a smaller garden and a lovely lump sum with no risk and no having to do it. So let's just take my example. I'm going to make about 75 grand profit. That's 37 and a half each. Let's just, can we just take it to 40 for maths? Not because I'm trying to bump the money up. How many of those do you need to do to make a million quid? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, not too many. Yeah in one year and if it costs you a grand and a half how much outlay is that to make a million quid is that what and you're saying the costs are to to generate that kind of income potentially now um we have got the most amazing architect and it cost me less than a grand and a half for my plan right. including the application form to bristol city council how because we took we assessed a hundred applications for planning permission that failed and won because i'm quite methodical as you know so I'm not just going to pick an architect because I've had some interesting, should we call them interesting experiences with architects? Just, just call it that. Um, so I want a job in architect who's going to roll their sleeves up and understand that at times us property developers are going to be left with 38 pence in the bank account. So there's no lesson, you know, there's no fancy here, you know, until you've made it later on. So we assessed 100 applications and we, we, I, well, I didn't. I got Connor in my team, who's, um, who was doing intern summer with me, who was studying architecture. I was like, mate, I want you to download a hundred applications of passed and failed. I want you to give me the top four architects who succeeded, and then I'm going to interview those four architects. Is that not logical? That's interesting stuff. Yeah, I mean, like you say, it's logical, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. Yeah. And this was the top guy. And funnily enough, he's a real. I'm just going to say bye to Arthur. Bye, Arthur. <laughs> Arthur's in our marketing team. He's going home, right? And interestingly, bye, Arthur. <laughs> he's saying bye. Bye. <laughs> he can come say hello. He's <laughs> he was a brilliant guy to work with. He was a, a, a property entrepreneur himself. Um, he'd succeeded and failed and succeeded, so he understood it and he paid huge attention to detail, which is why he was the most successful. So he was just a really great guy to roll his sleeves up. I like him very much. 
brilliant. That's brilliant. High level stuff. Thank you for, for giving us that. Just two things before we close down on, on the podcast interview. One is we've got to mention that your love of weightlifting is you like to <laughs> fit too. <laughs> yes. It's a stress reliever. You can't, when you're going a mile a minute, you can't think about all of those problems and difficulties and stresses of trying to buy like 30 houses when you're lifting a great big piece of weight above your head. And two, um, a really good friend of mine who's now emigrated to Australia, so I do miss him very much actually. He, he texted me today saying FaceTime soon. He, because I love, I love, I love learning. And so it, I was just so lucky to be in the right place at the right time. So I'm in my 40s. And we're talking not early 40s either. Well, and never known. Oh, bring it, bring it, <laughs> just bring it. But he was the British champion. Um, and I got on tremendously well with him. Love him to bits as a human being. And he ended up going to the Olympics. So can you imagine being coached by the best weightlifter in the UK? who ended up competing for Great Britain. In, I mean, I went to the Olympics, which is what property it gives you that freedom, doesn't it? I went yeah. to the Olympics to support my friend. So, so I had the complete good fortune to be in the right place with somebody that I ended, who was expert, that I ended up liking very much. And you know, we became great friends despite you know 20 odd year age gap. And we're still great friends. That's brilliant. And I know you're, you're quite a slight lady, relatively, and you're lifting huge weights. You know, when you told me how much, I thought, how much? You know, I couldn't believe it. So tell us how much. It, there are other people doing more than me. So fair and, Well, there's always someone doing more than, than anybody at anything. But even so, you know, I mean, you're, you know, you're uh, a businesswoman that does this for, you know, fun and, and yeah. enjoyment. And yet you're lifting how much? Okay. Uh, deadlifting 120, 125. That's a lot. 110. Snatch of 55. I think 55 is my best. So, yeah, it's good fun. That's a lot. I mean, when you think about, you know, your own body weight in relation to what you're lifting, that's incredible. Don't so, be asking so. me about that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to, I'm not going there. <laughs> so, okay, Susanna. I'm, that's it. I'm leaving it there. <laughs> so, okay. So, if anybody wants to get involved with uh, you, your company, know a little bit more about what you do, uh, even look at your videos, you know, as I do, what's the best way to get involved and get in touch? I think the best, um, we're super friendly, as in we, we're not a salesy, pushy, it's not our style. We want to make sure there's a fit, so don't be frightened. Pick up the phone. You know, my team are crackers. They're really, I don't mean crackers in a bad way. I mean, they're cracking people. <laughs> so the phone number is 0117 uh, 942 or email us on info at the good property company dot co dot uk. But you can get all of that from our website, and then, of course, there's, you know, look at the YouTube, Susanna Cole, TGPC, or Instagram or Facebook. Um, and, and all our contact details are on all of them. But just get in touch and say hi, you know, because I'm by good people, you know, and they're, they're great for a good chat. Okay. So anything else before we go and wrap up the show? I just want to say do it. I just genuinely... Um, like, like we all have duvet moments. I've had two where I literally have had to go back to bed and put the duvet over my head. So I think it's it's okay to know it's never going to be perfect. You're going to make loads of mistakes. Um, but I just want people to genuinely 
get on and try and make that change because and this is not a showy-offy thing it's just I'm 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 in my 40s still and I never need to work again you know and you're kind of you're kind of pinching yourself because everything I read in the books you know rich dad poor dad you know all of that stuff I logically could understand it and and yet it's come true and so that um beautiful situation of choice wouldn't it be wonderful if so many more people could have that too absolutely why not indeed it's what i try to encourage through the podcast so thank you very much for helping me do that you're obviously the expert we're all here to learn thank you very much indeed susanna thanks for your time this evening you know it's getting late in the day now and you're still at work good god woman go home go home (laughs) <laughs> well, I have a rule now, 182 days on holiday, but also seeing family, people I love. So I see my parents really often, my cousins, you know, and 183 days work. And isn't that blissful? So That's brilliant. Out a year in advance. Okay, well, thanks very much. Nice to speak to you. Thank you very much. I hope this podcast gives you inspiration. And if you want to contact me, I'm Andy Arter, and it's Transform Your Wealth and Health at gmail.com.